Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. It's Tuesday, June 21st. I'm Oscar Ramirez in Los Angeles, and this is The Daily Dive. Workers in the U.S. have a very strange relationship with working and not taking time off. After going through the pandemic, COVID may have done away with the sick day. Because of the pace of work or fears of getting in trouble, many people continued to log in for meetings and answered emails despite many companies changing sick day policies to allow people more time to heal. Managers also weren't good role models as they took to working while sick. This is coming despite companies changing sick day policies to allow people more time to heal. Emma Goldberg, reporter at the New York Times, joins us for why employees can't seem to take a sick day. Next, we'll tell you about the anti-cult activism of Ginny Thomas, wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. She focused on this work after a deprogramming she went through after she fell in with a group she considered a cult. She was involved with an organization called LifeSpring, which advertised training seminars that could help unlock hidden potential. The group was accused of breaking participants down mentally, and one man reportedly had a psychotic break. Alex Seitzwald, senior politics reporter at NBC News, joins us for how Thomas got out and the controversial world of anti-cult activism. It's news without the noise. Let's dive in. So it's pretty easy to wake up with a cough or aches or chills and just continue logging on, zooming into meetings, answering emails, and not taking the time to fully recover. Joining us now is Emma Goldberg, reporter at The New York Times. Thanks for joining us, Emma. Thanks so much for having me on. Well, let's talk about getting sick with COVID and then working through it anyways. It seems that here in this country, we have a real problem with nonstop work. And, you know, a lot of people obviously throughout the pandemic have had the opportunity to work from home, things like that. You know, you can always you're always tethered to emails or whatever it could be. But a lot of people, instead of taking the sick days, taking the time to get better, we're still kind of trudging through it. And uh, on all sides of it, right? Managers were doing it, setting bad examples for their uh, for their other employees. It, you know, really kind of almost has done away with the uh, taking a sick day. So Emma, tell us what we're seeing out there with this. Yeah, I mean, fundamentally, what you just said, there is a real sickness at the core of America's culture of sick leave. There's about 33 million Americans that don't have paid sick leave at all. And that's especially affecting low-income workers. That being said, even people who do have paid sick days often don't use them. And I think COVID has in some ways exacerbated that because 
so many people are working from home anyway, so it's pretty easy to wake up with a cough or aches or chills and just continue logging on, zooming into meetings, answering emails, and not taking the time to fully recover. Yeah, you know, it's the pace of work. That's a, there's a lot of factors that go into it. Everybody else, if you're project-based, everybody else, is, the project always continues, right? And you're kind of left behind if you have to sit it out. So, you know, you feel that urge to, you know, I can jump on this media. I can do a couple of emails here and there. And uh, it just kind of becomes this cycle where you just can't break out of it. I, I recently had COVID too, and I did the same thing. I worked a few days through it, and, and it was awful. Yeah, I got to admit, uh, the story came totally inspired. You know, I, I too had COVID and was working through it and, it. and it is sort of a tempting thing to do when you're alone in an apartment and you do need something to fill the time. That being said, you know, I think it's important to highlight the expectations it creates when, for example, employees see their managers working through COVID. Yeah, exactly. And that's kind of the point. You spoke to a lot of people who were in that position saying, you know, they created these new structures for sick time and paid leave. Some companies were giving their people unlimited days, like just go home, rest and get better. But then when it came time for them to take that time off, they didn't do it. And, you know, they were on those emails. They were on those meetings. And, uh, you know, as as you mentioned, just kind of setting that bad example. Exactly. You know, people really look to what their teammates are doing. They look to what their managers are doing. So I spoke with someone who said he recently got COVID. It was a really high pressure week of work, including a week in which a lot of his teammates had flown out for a retreat. And so he worked right through it and now looking back regrets it because he realizes it maybe didn't set the best example for his team. And this is also coming at a time where, you know, we are kind of moving into this different phase of the pandemic. It's not lockdowns and, you know, all the strict rules anymore. And even companies that once had, you know, changed their sick leave programs, whatever it is, and even, you know, uh, providing some more pay for their workers are changing all that stuff. Amazon, Walmart, they've all kind of gone back to some of their pre-pandemic models. Exactly. I think it's it's a really interesting moment, especially as more workers are starting to return to the office, but in some cases on a hybrid basis. Like you said, some companies are dropping the special benefits they introduced during the pandemic. And at the same time, you're seeing a counter push where mental health is really on the agenda for a lot of workplaces. And companies are trying to figure out how to support people and taking the time off that they need. One thing you're seeing companies do is offer um, what they're calling mental health days or mental health weeks, where they shut down the entire company. So it's not like one person might be off, but still getting emails and meeting invitations from their colleagues. Everyone is really forced to log off. That's uh, pretty cool for, you know, so the companies that can do it and, you know, employees that can benefit from that. But obviously that's not the case everywhere. You know, just going back to my own example, I do the podcast, I do a bunch of other things, but we post every day pretty much for the podcast. And if I dropped out, then we wouldn't have anything. So, you know, I told my producer, I was like, I'll work through some interviews, I'll do some, but I I was sweating at the end of those interviews. I was like, had to take a Mm -hmm. big deep breath at the end of it. I mean, is it just all in our minds that, well, you know, what do we need to do here in this country to get over that? I think it's it's such an interlocking kind of range of challenges and it you know the legal challenge of America being the only wealthy country that doesn't guarantee paid sick leave it's you know the cultural norms that that reinforces around working while you're sick and then it's the example of people set for one another and see reflected in their bosses so you know on, on every level I think Americans really kind of valorize working even while people are unwell 
Yeah, and you know, on the other side of it too, does it really hinder how fast you get better, right? I mean, you say, oh, it's a mild case, I can still do this, but you're not truly resting, you know, you're not giving your body that time to heal, and does it prolong the illness? So, you know, a lot of people say, a lot of people would say yes. It's a big question that people are asking is, is the absence of paid sick leave actually making people sicker? Um, and I, I spoke with one woman who noted she, her husband and her son all got COVID. Her son stayed home from school. Her husband took a little bit more time to rest and she felt too guilty. So she just worked right through it. And she reflected that she feels she might have healed a little bit faster if she'd taken time to really sleep and let her body recuperate. Emma Goldberg, reporter at The New York Times. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. If you love sports and true crime, then there's a new podcast from executive producer Dan Patrick and hosted by me, Jay Harris, that you won't want to miss. Playing Dirty Sports Scandals. Each week I'm squeezing the juiciest details from some of the biggest sports scandals ever. I'm talking Marcus Dixon, Olympic Gymnastics, Cain Velasquez, salacious Super Bowl-level scandals. Join me on the dark side of sports by listening to Playing Dirty Sports Scandals on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Hannah Storm, and my podcast, NBA DNA with Hannah Storm, digs deep into the history of professional basketball, along with my own as one of the first female sportscasters. Now let's get you up to speed on what else happened around the NBA today. We talked to all sorts of people I interacted with, from Dr. J to Charles Barkley, and recap iconic moments. Yes, he's got it. Here he comes. Ray rocked the baby to sleep and slam dunk. As well as some of the wild stories behind the scenes. We were like, what? What are we in for? The scoreboard crashes before we even tip a game off. Today, the NBA is a global sports and entertainment giant. Players are multimillionaires and cultural icons. Iguodala to Curry, back to Iguodala, up for the layup. Oh, blocked by James. LeBron James. And these stories are about how we got here, both on and off the court. And what's next? Listen to NBA DNA with Hannah Storr on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. You come away from a cult, you have to find a balance in your life as far as getting involved with fighting the cult or exposing it. I want to expose Lifespring. I want to keep other people from going through that experience. Joining us now is Alex Seitz-Wald, senior politics reporter at NBC News. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me. Well, let's talk about a, a really interesting story you wrote up about Ginny Thomas, the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas and some of her anti-cult activism. So in the 80s, she was very much involved in a lot of this stuff. But, you know, what we're seeing is that she was also deprogrammed for a minute. She was part of a group called Lifespring at the time, and she felt like she had to get out one day. And she went, and with the help of a deprogrammer, she was able to kind of leave the organization. So, Alex, uh, uh, tell us a little bit about uh, Ginny Thomas's uh, anti-cult activism, and then we'll get into a lot of this other stuff. There's a lot of fascinating details in here. 
Yeah, this is a, a wild story and definitely a, a rabbit hole that my colleague Alan Smith and I fell down. And it came up because Thomas has been shown to be sort of bought into what appears to be some, you know, QAnon type stuff, which has also been called uh, a cult. So basically, uh, in the 80s, Jenny Thomas was a lawyer. She was just moved to Washington and she got involved with this group called LifeSpring. That was a sort of new age self-help group. They would put people through these very intense trainings, kind of psychologically break them down with the goal that you could supposedly unlock superhuman potential in you. And after you did the first training, they would, of course, say, well, you got to come back and do the second one, the third one, you know, like Scientology or Nexium or any of these groups. And eventually some people became so involved, they essentially started working for their group and it became kind of their whole life. And Jenny Thomas was one of those people. She, there was a, there was a uh, Washington Post expose in 1987 that she spoke to the reporter. She was a lobbyist for the Chamber of Commerce at the time. And she said she became so intellectually involved with the group that it was poisoning her relationships with her friends or coworkers or family because they didn't recognize her and she was trying to sell them these trainings. So she contacted a, a deprogrammer that was a practice has fallen out of favor, but the idea was that people in cults were brainwashed and they needed to be essentially unbrainwashed to get out. It was a long process. She had to move across the country at one point because she was getting inundated by calls from other members of this group trying to bring her back into the fold. And through this experience, she became an anti-cult activist. She organized trainings on Capitol Hill. She spoke out publicly. She was a, you know, a politically connected lawyer. So she used those skills and, and those connections to help advance the anti-cult agenda, which at the time had its own controversies. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I'm, these uh, the cults and th- you know organizations like this are always so fascinating to me. And you mentioned it, Nexium is one of those ones that a lot of people might uh, be more familiar with a, a lot more recently because it was in the news. But, you know, some of these experts call these things large group awareness trainings. And as you mentioned, it's kind of in the guise of self-help and, uh, you know, unlocking potential and whatnot. Tell us a little bit more about what happened with Lifespring because things, once they start hitting the public, things start going wrong. I guess there were several trainees that died in there. Yeah. There was settlements, there was lawsuits, and that's what kind of really caused the, the downfall of at least that organization. Yeah, that's right. And uh, there's there's been a whole bunch of, of what experts call these large group awareness trainings, and they're all kind of some variation on the same idea. Uh, there was also, you might remember, the, the Sweat Lodge Guru, where I think uh, three people died in Arizona back in like 2009. And all of them do some version of putting people through very intense experiences. They might have you walk on hot coals, or Jenny Thomas said that in the LifeSpring group, they would have the entire group stripped down to their underwear, and then everybody would take turns pointing at and you know shaming one person at a time. Basically, whatever they could do to really break you down. Uh, there was a, a, two psychologists who went in and undercover did one of these trainings, and they witnessed a guy have a psychotic break in front of everyone. Instead of helping him, the organizers just berated him and said that it was his fault that he was uh, having this psychotic break. Uh, you mentioned a couple of people died. These weren't cases where you know there was violence, but it, the, the most famous case, there was a woman who had an asthma attack and they would not let her go to her car and get her inhaler because they said that she could overcome the asthma attack if she just you know, worked harder. She didn't and she died. They, they prevented her from seeking help. They had to settle for $450,000 with the family. So most of these groups end up going defunct through either lawsuits 
or sometimes criminal action like with Nexium. And they can create a culture where the leaders of these groups can get really rich and powerful and sometimes do some really gross or, or bad things with the people that they have under their control. Let's talk a little bit about the other side, because you mentioned it, the deprogrammer. So Ginny Thomas herself said she saw deprogrammer through the help of that, this was able to help her get out of all of this stuff. But, you know, that's not without its own controversy. A lot of these deprogrammers, or at least the way it was working early on in kind of this, uh, you know, as these things started taking hold, they were accused of kidnapping people, basically, because it's hard to get somebody out of an organization. So I guess they would take a person away, hide them away, you know, deprive them of food and water, even anything to kind of like make make something click in their head to get them out of whatever they'd been practicing already for so long. Yeah, that's exactly right. And this was a thing that I have to say, I was completely unaware of. I was just fascinated as we were, you know, researching and exploring this story. So keep in mind, this is after the Jonestown massacre in 79 when you know a u.s congressman went down to investigate what was happening at this compound of a u.s-based cult everybody died there was a they committed suicide they killed the congressman this is where the term drink the kool-aid comes from there was a string of these kind of mass suicides so there was this big national panic that was justified in getting very concerned about these cults and it and to a lot of parents it seemed like their their kids would just disappear into these organizations never to be heard from again so the anti-cult movement rose up in its place but the problem was it was these self-trained self-appointed people and there was no real oversight or authority watching this. And because they had kind of the moral authority on their side, they got away with a lot of stuff that in hindsight looks really bad. They would have parents. And, and, you know, there's, there was a range of people. So the person that Jenny Thomas worked with, we've no, he's, he's passed away. We've no evidence that he engaged in any of this. He seemed to just be more of kind of a counselor, like you would do a, a drug intervention. But a lot of these people, including the people who are running this group that Jenny Thomas got involved with, would do these active deprogrammings, they call them involuntaries, because they would literally, uh, they call it snatch, but the, the ACLU and many other people call it kidnapping. They would literally kidnap people at the behest of their parents and take them away. And the belief was because they were brainwashed, they had to snap out of it. And you had to, you know, you can picture Clockwork Orange where they hold your eyes open. <laughs> they had to do whatever it took to get you out of this. And the case that kind of ended this was a man who who got abducted outside of his mother's house, was held at a remote beach house for five days with very little food and water. They wouldn't let him sleep. I mean, kind of like the enhanced interrogation tactics we use uh, in Guantanamo Bay. And then he finally feigned acceptance. He said, you're right, you're right. You know, I've, I've come out of it. They took him to dinner to celebrate. And then he went to the bathroom and actually ran away to the police and ended up suing. It became this huge thing, a ton of media attention. And that kind of ended the practice of deprogramming. But when Ginny Thomas was involved, this was a very common practice. Uh, One survey, 40 percent of cult members were abducted and they wrestled with this, that we have video that we obtained of the, the head of the group that she was involved with, uh, with Jenny Thomas on the stage there saying, you know, are we doing the right thing? It, it's tough to know, but we think we're on the right side. Yeah, I mean, and it's even changed the industry since then, right? Now they position themselves kind of as exit counselors, something more familiar, kind of like a drug or alcohol intervention. You know, everything's changed when a bunch of lawsuits start popping up. And, and then so now, you know, connecting the dots to some of this QAnon stuff, that's, you know, some of why the the curiosity of some of the actions 
that Jenny Thomas was taking, you know, around the time of the election and all that and some of the stuff she was texting to lawmakers, all that stuff coming out of the talking points of a lot of the QAnon stuff that we're seeing. And as you mentioned in the article, you know, uh, some people have referred to it as a cult. You know, who knows if it is technically one. A lot of this stuff just takes place on online message boards. But uh, again, uh, you know, some people question how she, uh, Ginny Thomas, might have been sucked into some of these things. It was one person put it to me. I can't believe she fell for it again. That was a lawyer who specialized in suing cults on behalf of ex-cult members. And he worked with Thomas. He knew her. He said she was a smart person. She he was shocked that, that she did this. But other people that we spoke with who, who knew her said, well, there is a well-known thing in psychology that, you know, if you fall victim to one of these groups, if you're, if you're prone to believing in one of these things, you're prone to believing in others. The best indicator of if somebody is prone to conspiracy theories is if they already believe in another conspiracy theory. And she spoke openly in one of these panels that uh, we obtained video of, of in 1987. Uh, it was a panel of this anti-cult group. She spoke openly about how she had to do some introspection and think internally about what made her vulnerable to this group, what made her want to join it, and if those parts of her personality are still there. Her pastor growing up in, in Omaha, she came from a, a prominent family in Omaha, he said that, that she had this, he used the word naivety about her uh, and this generosity where she would she couldn't pass a homeless person on the street without trying to help them. So the commonality to connect the dots, you know, whether you want to believe QAnon is a cult or not, I think that the common connection here is that both of these groups or entities are offering an alternate reality that is really appealing. It's really appealing that you can go to these trainings right. in the case of LifeSpring and you can fix everything in your life. You can be a better worker, a better, a better husband or wife or father. You can just everything that you think is wrong with you, you can fix. And if you're a deeply conservative person, it's really appealing to believe that, no, your guy actually won the election. And not only that, but there is this whole secret apparatus that is out there that is, is about to spring into action. Everything's going to work out in the end. Don't worry. Because those, those were the text messages that she was sending was talking about how there's this, this big military Trumpian operation that's going to put everything right. So in both cases, it's buying into a more attractive reality that is unfortunately uh, for them, not the yeah. actual reality. Totally. It's a fascinating story. There's a lot of great details. So I suggest everybody get out and read it. Alex Seitzwald, senior politics reporter at NBC News. Thank you very much for joining us. Thanks for having me. That's it for today. Join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on both Twitter and Instagram. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of The Daily Dive was produced by Victor Wright and engineered by Tony Sorrentino. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this was your Daily Dive. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Mini Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., 
And I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. To Die For is available now. Listen for free on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.